A couple of weeks ago, I was in a yoga class, and amid all the intention setting and gratitude affirming, my teacher said something that made me laugh. She was talking about how dark it was outside. This was an early morning class, and the sky was as blue as a bruise. The teacher said she was looking forward to the light returning at last, which is what cracked me up. She was, of course, referring to the December solstice, to midwinter, the longest night, which was then a few weeks away. And I found it funny, because even though the light doesn't disappear completely in Denmark in midwinter, it can often feel that way. Is it any wonder, then, that Danes are so obsessed with lighting, that Denmark has produced many of the world's most iconic lights, that Danes have the world's highest consumption of candles, and that light is fundamental to the country's best-known cultural phenomenon, Hygge. You are listening to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. I'm your host, James Clasper, and this episode is all about illumination. Ahead of the winter solstice, I sat down with a trio of design devotees to discuss the light fantastic. We'll hear from an artist who turns scrap metal into sculptural lamps. We'll also meet an interior designer whose rare health condition means she avoids what she describes as visual chaos. But first, we're heading to Fredericksburg to meet author Melena Lutkin. Good morning. Hi, I'm James. Hi, How lovely to meet you. At long last. A graduate of the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts, she's one of Denmark's leading experts on lighting. I mean, she even has a PhD on candles and lamps in Danish homes. And this winter sees the launch of Milena's latest book, Danish Lights, 1920 to Now. The first comprehensive account of Danish lamp design, the book tells the stories of a hundred lamps and the designers who created them. So who better to sit down with on a grey winter's day to talk about Danish lighting? I started by asking Milena what makes light so interesting as an object of design. A chair is something every designer wants to uh, to design because it's so important for us. You sit so much, so you need a good chair. So sometimes you can ask yourself, is it possible to make any more chairs? But apparently it is. And light is so important because we really need this light all the time. And if the light is not good, we are not comfortable. So a good light is so important for us. No disagreement there. But why does the book begin in 1920? In 1920, half of the Danes had got electric light. It has become less expensive, uh, more affordable. And it was now that people began to be really interested in having some good light because it was so different from what we had before. Before, all lights were from flames. Indeed, for centuries, Danes had lit their homes with one form or another of controlled combustion. Whether campfires or pinewood resin sticks, tallow or wax candles, or lamps that burnt oil, gas or kerosene. And then came electricity. In 1892, the first electric street lamps were lit in the central Copenhagen Square, Kons Nutor, and the installation of the first power plant nearby made it possible for the Danish royal family to have electric lighting at the palace. 
but it would take a couple of decades before ordinary Copenhageners could say that everything was illuminated with electric lighting. By 1920, the proliferation of power plants in the capital made electric lighting more affordable, and that year, the Copenhagen Municipal Lighting Company held a competition for a new electric streetlight. It was won by an ambitious young architect named Paul Henningsen. The very special thing about Paul Henningsen was that he was not just making design for making design. He actually wanted to do something good for people. He wanted to make a, a pleasant light for them. The winning light is all but forgotten today, but it's the first story in Milena's book, and it laid the groundwork for Henningsen's efforts to achieve glare-free lighting, which would later earn him global renown. Picture a Danish light, and chances are it will be a pH lamp, the instantly recognizable light fixture Henningsen designed. Stick a pin in that, though. We'll get back to Henningsen in a moment. First, I think we should clarify why Danes are so into lighting. Because we don't have so much of the real light, the sunlight. We have a lot in the summertime, but in the winter there are so many dark hours and we are so much inside our houses. It's cold outside, so we have to be inside. When we are inside, we have to create the same conditions as outside. According to one study, in fact, the average Dane spends between 80 and 90% of their time indoors. And the point of interior lighting is that it typically aims to imitate the light we experience outdoors. In other words, we want a soft blue light in the morning when we wake up, a strong clear light during the day when we work, and a warm reddish light in the evening when we relax. Sounds simple, right? However, not all light is created equally. You see, each successive development or upgrade of light, from wax to kerosene to carbon filament, and later to mesofilament light bulb, raised the temperature of light. The light from a candle is warm and red. The light from an incandescent bulb is cooler and bluer. So when electric lighting hit Danish homes in the 1920s and 30s, people initially shrouded their new filament bulbs in red and yellow silk shades to ensure the light they gave off was warm and red. It was so dazzling, it was so bright. And it was because they were used to oil lamps and uh, candle lights who had this warm glow. Indeed, what people wanted was for their homes to be cosy, to be, dare I say it, hugelet. In her book, Milena explains that Hugo has long been an ideal in interior design and arose as a concept with the Danish upper middle class in the early 19th century as a celebration of warm, close relations in the home. Though it's easily mocked, you can see how what was ostensibly a form of progress, incandescent bulbs replacing gaslighting, wasn't that popular with ordinary homemakers. Because while the new bulbs were brighter, they weren't especially hugely. An interesting design challenge, perhaps, yet the modernist designers of the day were just about done with Hygge. Hygge was a part of this uh, eclectic decoration and uh, the Victorian way of living with a lot of dark colours, a lot of uh, fabrics, uh, a lot of decorations. And Hygge was a thing uh, who was combined with that. So the modernists tried to make a more simple way of living, more bright way of living, and they were actually against Hygge. However, there was one designer in particular who seemed to grasp 
what the public wanted. Paul Henningsen, he was a modernist, and he wanted all that the other modernists wanted, but he understood that light couldn't be just bright because people wanted something warm. And actually, it's hygge. So maybe they didn't use the word hygge very much in that period, but uh, it was very important. People don't want to be in a damn cold light, I suppose he said. And in that uh, sense, he understood the concept of hygge. He wasn't against it. Henningsen would go on to design a glare-free lamp in 1926. And as carbon filaments gave way to metal ones, making light harsher and cooler still, he never stopped designing lighting. And as Milena's book reminds us, this was the golden age of Danish design, a period stretching throughout the middle of the 20th century, when many Danish architects and designers achieved global fame. We discussed some of them in a previous episode, which explored why Danes are so crazy about chairs. And of course, many of those same architects and designers also designed lights. When they made their fabulous buildings, they, they designed everything to put inside. But also when they, had to, when they had to show their furnitures at exhibitions, they had to put a light over the furnitures. And of course, it would be better to put your own design over than someone else's. So, so they made lights. It's fair to say, though, that the modernist style of lighting wasn't an instant hit. While its adherents sought to make homes more hygienic, aesthetic and rational in order to provide healthier living conditions, plenty of ordinary people felt the functionalists went too far and eliminated all the homeliness and hygge. A cartoon from 1943 reflects this point of view. The first panel shows an elderly couple sitting in a cluttered but cosy Victorian drawing room. There's a lot of dark wood and soft furnishings, and everything's lit by the soft glow of a kerosene lamp. A keen young architect can be seen entering the room stage left. The second panel shows the architect leaving stage right, having utterly transformed the room. Everything who was cosy is gone. It's white, and the light is Paul Henningsen's. I suppose it looks a lot like Paul Henningsen's lamps, and now they're not cosy anymore, and they look sad. Uh, and the drawing is called An Architect Went By the Room. Henningsen and the other modernists would have the last laugh, though. Today, their lights are as popular as ever, and automatic signifiers of mid-century modern style, especially the pH lamp. A pendant light designed by Henningsen and intended to hang low over a dining table, it was launched by the lighting company Louis Poulsen in 1958. To call it a hit is something of an understatement. Allegedly, the pH 5 can be found in one in five Danish homes, prompting a possibly apocryphal story about a Japanese man, a cultural attaché perhaps, returning home from Denmark in the 1960s. And he said to people over there that, uh, well, the government in Denmark, when people get married, they get on pH 5 because he saw it in all the homes. He actually saw it. It was a present to them. In a way, then, the popularity of the pH lamp typifies why Henningsen matters, unlike other modernists who had a negative view of Hugo and associated it with the dark and highly ornamental style that they wanted to leave behind. Henningsen was sympathetic to people's desire to use lighting to create a cosy ambience. And as Milena explains, little has changed 
in a century of Danish lighting design. When we talk about modern light, hygge is something you have to, to think about when you are designing. And uh, they thought about it in the 1920s and they think about it today. That was Milena Lutkin, the author of Danish Lights, 1920 to now, richly illustrated with both new and historical photographs. The book tells a hundred stories about iconic Danish lamps and the designers who created them, from Arne Jakobsen and Werner Panton to Oliver Eliasson and Louise Campbell. And hoping to join the pantheon of Danish lighting design is artist Morten Raum. Earlier this year, he and his partner Nicolene Henningsen launched a new light company, Lumiere Bricoleur. I met them in Copenhagen recently and asked Morten to explain his unusual approach to lamp design. Basically, we take uh, discarded materials, leftovers from industry, and upcycle it into sculptural lamps. But it's it's quite different depending on what we find because we find our materials all over the place, from the streets to scrapyards and sometimes even in the woods. Lumière Bricoleur takes its name from a term coined by the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, who observed how some indigenous cultures would combine elements they found in their local environment and put them together in new ways. For his part, Morton describes the technique as sort of like collage, but in three dimensions. And his local environment is effectively anywhere that people discard materials. The scrapyard is a magical place. <laughs> I mean, um, they're like the unspoken heroes of society in a way because they sort of take the trash and, and they make sure it can get recycled by sorting it. And one day in the scrapyard, Morton and Nicolene stumbled across some rolls of copper. Despite their cost and weight, they decided to take the rolls home, not really knowing what they would use them for. When we unpacked them, they turned out to have the most uh, gorgeous patina because of the special oxidation they've been uh, subjected to through the usage in industry. At this stage, Morton was merely thinking about using the rolls of copper in a new artwork. The sounds you can hear is Morton softening the copper with a blowtorch, allowing him to sculpt and shape it more easily. Indeed, their approach is somewhat unconventional. Morton and Nicolene don't do any drawing or 3D modeling. Instead, they put together and shape these found objects intuitively. We started playing with them, putting light sources into the material while we shaped them in, in, the, in the studio that we darkened. We could sort of shape the light as we shaped the materials itself, and we discovered that the way the light interacts with the material um, is quite beautiful, and it's something entirely different than what you would achieve by going through the usual or uh, more classical design process. And so the idea of Lumière Bricoleur was born. Why, though, does the world need another light? Many of the lights we have today were developed in earlier times, so they haven't really adapted to the time we live in today, maybe. And um, one of the things we think is lacking in the market at the moment is uh, uh, more sustainable lights and more unique lights. So it's easy to find a, a good quality, nice uh, Paul Henningsen lamp, for instance, that part of the market is covered. But if you want to buy a sculptural lamp, which is also sustainable, 
you're not going to be able to afford a light by Olaf Ueli or something, let's say. Yeah, so you can't really, not a lot of people can go into galleries and buy from, uh, from the designers who work at the intersection of art and design. What, though, makes Lumiere Bricoleur a sustainable company? Copper doesn't really end up in landfills. It's one of the most sustainable metals because it's so valuable. So it's estimated that about 80% of all copper ever mined is still in use today. Also what the, the whole thing René Redsebi did with Noma, where he took the, probably the least sexy ingredients, which is ants, and turned them into the most exotic ingredient all of a sudden. That's sort of what we're trying to do with, by taking what might be considered trash in a way, and turn it into treasures by reshaping it, recontextualizing it. Moreover, they hope to show that being sustainable and being creative go hand in hand. One of the beautiful things about working with this bricolage technique and something we hope to actually inspire other people to do is, is to start seeing the value in neglected materials because we've already used up enough of the Earth's resources, pulled them out of the Earth, and there's so much in the world as it is that it's more, now we think it's more of a question of looking at what's in the world and how can we find a new way to use that. In the first part of this episode, we talked about homeliness and how the shift from kerosene and oil to incandescent bulbs threatened to ruin Hugo. Melina Lukan explains in her book that for a while, plenty of lamp designers similarly struggled to make LED lights work for them. And Morton says that he and Nicolene also struggled to find the right LEDs to suit their sculpted copper, even if Hugo was never on their mind. We actually don't think about it ever. But uh, I think uh, the lighting that our lamps give off is uh, is very hugelit, um, because it's sort of reminiscent of a bonfire or a miniature sunset. Uh, because we found the w- uh, some light bulbs that interact really well with the material, so you have the interaction between the light bulb and the material, which give off these very dark orange hues and and goes all the way to a more bright uh, yellow um, at the center. So so they they do provide some very good uh, mood lighting, I would say. That was Morten Raum, an artist and lighting designer, and one half of the new Danish lamp company Lumiere Bricoleur. Now, speaking of mood lighting, it's something that matters a great deal to my final guest. My name is Hannah Trickett and I am an interior design writer and consultant. Originally from the UK, Hannah has lived in Copenhagen since 2017 and consults with both private residential clients and businesses on everything from room design to interior problem solving. Something of a trend watcher with a beady eye on what's new, Hannah spends a lot of time talking to architects and designers and has a good grasp of how Scandinavian design influences everyday life. So when I met Hannah at her townhouse in southern Copenhagen, I began by asking her a deceptively simple question. What is good light? Light has to be functional, which is an obvious answer, but it has to work well for the client, for the um, the person that it's intended for. So good lighting in a room has to, I, I would say, has to be from multiple areas of the room. And can change to suit the the mood um, and the light that comes in through the window. And in that respect, Hannah has a good rule of thumb 
when it comes to what makes good room lighting. You really do need between six and eight um, different light sources within one room to make it feel um, warm and inviting and without it feeling dead. Just looking at the room I'm writing this script in, I just about scrape into the land of the living, thanks to the LEDs on my Christmas tree. As a Brit, I didn't grow up especially interested in lights or aware of their mystical power to provide hygge. Hannah's British too, but she has a Danish grandmother. So I was curious as to how she compares the British and Danish way of lighting a room. My house here in Copenhagen doesn't have a million spotlights in the ceiling like my previous home did in London. I would say that a lot of the lighting in Denmark is very minimal and there's, there's very little um, decoration and adornment. Maybe in the UK, I would see that there's probably much more of an eclectic um, style, which is, I would say, not so, not very Danish. Indeed, never mind spotlights in the ceiling. In the UK, it's also common to see a single pendant light in the middle of the room and not much else. And as Hannah points out, that style of lighting can pretty much kill a room or make its occupants feel like they're being interrogated. Denmark, on the other hand, has a long history of designing lamps and seeking to create a greater feeling of homeliness. Adding lamps and creating that hygge is just part of their culture. It's part of their heritage and it's just what they do well. Little wonder then that clients in the UK and elsewhere seek interior design advice from Copenhagen-based consultants like Hannah. I was curious though, what does she make of contemporary Danish lighting design? It's in a really interesting period. There's um, a really sculptural art-led movement at the moment, I think probably inspired by the Bauhaus movement. So there's a lot of sculptural lamps, but very minimal and raw, um, with raw materials. And on the other hand, there's sophisticated elegance, which seems quite um, classic, but I would say that, you know, classic Danish design was not so sophisticated. It was um, quite industrial. So it's, it's exciting to see these quite polar opposites. They're both exploring um, a different way of um, living. Now, what I think is especially interesting about Hannah is her own very particular need to get a room right. I have a health condition called hydrocephalus. Um, it's an onset um, condition that I, um, I, just, I just fell ill when I was 13. Um, I had a collection of fluid on the brain. So I've had multiple brain surgeries from the age of 13 onwards. Um, it was under control. And then within, in my mid-20s, during my interior design career, I fell ill again. So I had a series of operations and brain surgeries and which kind of made me change the way that I lived. I need a little bit more TLC. So I began working from home and then it made me focus on how to design a home around my well-being, um, which is very important for me. And it's made me more empathetic um, to others and to understand design for well-being is just incredibly important. On her website, Hannah writes about living with hydrocephalus and the complexity of enduring a series of broken brain implants and searching for the correct brain pressure. It all seems a world away from lighting design. As it turns out, though, for a trained interior designer, 
used to working on other people's homes, rethinking her own environment, may well be her most important work to date. From 2010 to 2015, I had a lot of operations, a lot of surgery, and I needed a sense of calm. I needed, um, I needed to see, yeah, a very calm, restful space. Um, I didn't want any visual chaos. And so that has changed dramatically. And from then, I've become almost like obsessed with finding that style. Doing away with any visual chaos, as she puts it, means designing her home in a calm, minimalist style. Lots of neutral hues, natural materials, and pared-back design. You can see for yourself on Hannah's Instagram feed. Her home is the epitome of Scandinavian minimalism. And when it comes to lighting... I prefer soft lighting, definitely. I think with harsh lighting, when you, like, if you've got a migraine, you don't want harsh lighting. And my headaches and head pains that I still have are bad enough that I would probably need surgery. So I have to take it seriously. So soft lighting is is important. Dimmable lighting helps me control the light from when um, to however I need it. Obviously, I love natural daylight. And so that is really important to try and get in as much light as I can into the room. Because um, I spend a lot of time inside. So I need to um, get that daylight. Every interior designer has a particular design ethos, of course, and the serenity and tranquility of minimalism is certainly a very common one. But what makes Hannah stand out is how clearly she appreciates the importance of designing a home and how valuable that can be for one's health and well-being. And so, when all said and done, does she think the world needs another light? Yes, <laughs> and I need them. It would be a sad day if we stopped designing anything. The world evolves really fast and our lives change um, constantly. And so design needs to evolve with us and in anticipation for how we, our lives change. So we need new lights. Um, and I really look forward to seeing how lighting design evolves. That was Hannah Trickett, an interior design consultant and writer, talking about the ever-changing world of Danish lighting. You can find links to her writing in the show notes, along with more information about Lumia Bricoleur and Melena Lutkin's new book, Danish Lights, 1920 to Now. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you found it illuminating. My thanks to all the guests. And before I go, I just want to say a big thank you for some lovely reviews. Keep them coming, and if you have any feedback or ideas, you can always tweet me at ArchipelagoPod. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, James Clasper. The sound design is by Copenhagen-based musicians, squares and triangles, and scenery. Many thanks for listening, have a luminous new year, and see you in 2020.